Roger that, Houston. All systems five by five. But what if there is no tomorrow? There wasn't one today. Welcome to the Nerdfest podcast today with. <clears throat> Welcome to the Nerdfest podcast today. We've got Dan Watkins, John Farben, Peter Johnson, Andy Chandler, and I'm Hazel Burton. On our show today, we've got some brand new recommendations for you. We're also going to do another taking one for the team, and Dan is going to review for us Artemis Fowl. Foul is a good word. Right. <laughs> Spoilers. <laughs> and we'll be answering some of your listener questions. So let's get started. Are you guys ready to tackle the listeners? I've been trying to tackle the listeners for about 60 episodes now, but for some reason it's surprisingly difficult to find out where they live. <laughs> We've got to keep two metres away from them anyway. Yeah. I have, yes. Since the injunction. <laughs> So the first one is from longtime listener, first time caller, Ian Mayer, at Ian Mayer. And he asks, what's the best cartoon TV show? The Simpsons. Next question. (laughs) I'm really enjoying Harley Quinn at the moment. That's pretty good. Yeah, that's very good. It takes a few episodes to settle in. It's on a streaming service and I think it gets overexcited by the fact it can do swears and violence. But once it gets past that, it's a really funny, fresh take, isn't it? A refreshing amount of lack of respect for the characters. And a really nice relationship between the two female leads as well. But is it as good as the 1990s Fox Kids Spider-Man animated series? Ooh. Very few things are. Well, the (laughs) X-Men 90s cartoon series is up there. It is. Yeah, Yeah, all of these are on Disney Plus now, aren't they? So we can can check them out. They are, and we have. (laughs) Uh, my two favourites are The Flintstones. I watched that religiously as a kid. Um, and Archer, which I think I recommended a couple of years ago on the podcast. Mm. Does that count? Did you know that they don't have The Flintstones in Dubai? Oh, oh. John, you've done this joke ah, so many times. On the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I want to hear it. You really don't. They don't have The Flintstones in Dubai, but Abu Dhabi do. Thank you. Thanks. Peter, I'd appreciate it if you put some sort of effect in there that indicates how disappointed we are with John's resurgent joke. The thing with tumbleweed is it's silent, isn't it? Yeah. The answer to this question is definitely The Simpsons, but my first favourite cartoon series, as in the one I was youngest when I watched, is The Real Ghostbusters, which I watched Uh before I saw Ghostbusters. And to (laughs) me, The Real Ghostbusters are The Real Ghostbusters. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Can I give a shout out to, it's it's probably not my favourite because that is Simpsons seasons one to eight and a half, but I really enjoyed the Clerks cartoon series, which has been a little bit forgotten about, which ran for six episodes around the millennium. It was put on ABC, who yanked it off the air after, I think, I think they had two of the six episodes, <laughs> and then it found a afterlife on DVD. <laughs> And it is really, really clever and funny. There's an episode that spoofs The Last Starfighter and Indiana Jones and The Temple of Doom. Did you write it, John? I did not write it, no. But it's just <laughs> really, really funny and inventive. They do things like they do a clip show in the second episode. But because it's the second episode, they've only got one episode to do clips from. <laughs> uh, and an episode where towards the end, the script gets lost on the way to the Korean Animation Studios. So the Korean animators decide to just finish the episode without the script and things like that. So it does it does a lot of funny meta cartoon stuff and it's a lot of good jokes in there. It's probably one of the best things Kevin Smith's done, hmm. I would say. Did he voice Silent Bob? He did, and as much as Silent Bob uh, does actually have some words because every episode ends with Jay and Silent Bob's safety tip in the style of the 80s cartoons where they'd have a little public service announcement at the end. But there's some odd concessions to network TV, so Jay and Silent Bob sell fireworks instead of being drug dealers and that sort of thing. They, they, get, they, they get away with quite a lot. It's all the original cast from the film. And our second listener question is from Mikey T at Skipper23, and he asks... 
What's the worst movie merchandise tie-in that you've ever seen? I'm, I'm torn as to whether this is the worst or one of the best. Um, I did once come across an Empire Strikes Back torn torn sleeping bag (laughs) (laughs) that's amazing did you have to cut it open to get inside it it was only online um sadly i would have tried it out if it had been in the is it red on the inside Uh. i think so actually yeah don't know how it smells well i've got a star warsy answer as well when the phantom menace came out there was a glut of terrible merchandise and uh, does anybody remember those really sticky, like, frog things that you threw at a wall and they stuck to the wall? Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. That, but it's Jar Jar Binks's tongue and you kind <laughs> of throw the tongue out of his mouth and it sticks to walls and surfaces and things like that. Oh. <laughs> yes, I had one. How about a game of Jumanji that doesn't transport you to any other worlds at all? So every child who opens it gets really, really disappointed. <laughs> Currently on sale in Edinburgh at the moment. I still wouldn't risk it. (laughs) Apparently there's a Dr. Manhattan Watchmen condom, which says on the wrapper, we're society's only protection, which is wrong in lots of different ways. Do you remember the pop band JLS? Yes. They did their own band of condoms a few years back. On a a similar related topic, apparently, I haven't seen them, but um, there are some (laughs) Pinocchio boxer shorts that... uh, I'll need to expand. <laughs> Do they say lie to me? <laughs> I actually own two pieces of merchandise that are disturbingly look wrong. I will post pictures of these on our Twitter feed when the episode goes live. I have the Star Wars Battle at Salak Pit board game, which I purchased this week, which is a 1983 board game based on the opening scenes of Return of the Jedi. And it comes with a 3D Salek pit made out of cardboard that you construct, which unfortunately looks like nothing more than a pile of hidden anus. If you, oh. it, it's disturbingly arse-like. <laughs> what is a children's toy? And the other similar one that I have, I don't collect these things deliberately <laughs> for this reason, but um, I have an Alien Covenant soft toy face hugger. <laughs> the face hugger is popping out of the egg, but you can pull the face hugger out to a separate toy, um, which leaves you with nothing more than a very, very phallic bottom of an alien face hugger and an egg with a bright red entrance for you to insert the face hugger into. And it just looks like Muppet porn, basically, when you you put it in and out of there. And again, this is supposedly a, a family plush toy that I bought for Louise for her birthday. And her response was just, this is one of the most disturbing things I've ever seen. We'll tackle some more listener questions next time. If you would like to get us nerds to answer one of your awesomely composed questions, you can send us a message at Nerdfest UK on Twitter or on Facebook, and we will do our best to include as many as we can over the coming episodes. Unless they're terrible. So now let's have a chat about our recommendations and this can be something new or something that is new to us. Dan, what would you like to review this week? Well, today I'd like to recommend a pair of podcasts that are connected by a shared theme. The first one is The Californian Century. It's 10 15-minute episodes made by the BBC telling the story of California from the beginning to the end of the 1900s. So from the first films made there to the modern influence of Silicon Valley. And it's presented by Stanley Tucci. Tucci narrates the story of each episode in the style of a hard-boiled screenwriter. So each one's like a screenplay, giving a really vivid way of picturing the stories he describes with his great Stanley Tucci-esque voice. California's first filmmaker shot dead by a gardener. The man who controlled LA's water supply in the 20s. Ice-T's journey from the song Cop Killer to playing a cop on TV. The recurring theme is that in California, you can make it to the top, but if you fall, it's a long way down. Hollywood features a lot, both the glamour and the darker side, but figuring heavily and always underlying is the issue of racism, segregation and discrimination. So one episode focuses on the Black Panther Party and the Black Power Movement, and the story of the pioneer of Silicon Valley reveals that he went on to be an advocate of eugenics. 
Tucci's presenting style combines with contributions from academics and journalists to make a series that shows the stories behind the state that's influenced so much of our lives from the movies to the technology we're probably using to record this podcast. And Connected Thematically is the second podcast, a series of six 40-minute episodes by the podcast You Must Remember This, called Six Degrees of Song of the South. It's a detailed, meticulously researched exploration of the film Disney doesn't like us to think about. Its background, the racist attitudes it purveys, and its legacy from four cinema re-releases, several of which followed the civil rights movement. The last one was in 1986. Mm. And its use in theme park rides, which is pretty topical now as Disney have just announced a rebrand of Splash Mountain. And its music like Zippity Doodah, despite the problematic origins of that one, to say the least. Like Californian Century, it's got an episode about Hattie McDaniel, which goes into more depth about her history, the world in which she and other black performers at the time lived, and the reception to the roles that she famously played. So both podcasts have got really interesting parallels to and lessons for things happening right now, but they're very entertaining, fascinating listens as well. Oh, wow. And that's my recommendation. Mm. Okay, that yeah. sounds good. Definitely going to check those out. Thanks, Dan. The Splash Mountain ride apparently is going to be The Princess and the Frog. Yes. Which is a film I don't think I've seen. It's good. It's Disney going back to hand-drawn animation, sort of 2D style, which they hadn't really done since they moved to CG in the early 2000s and haven't really done again since. But it's really nicely drawn, really well animated. It's the first black Disney princess as well, and I think to date the only one. So the fact that apparently Splash Mountain is set in a New Orleans-themed area of Disneyland anyway. Yeah. So it, it should fit yeah. in pretty well. Mm. I have been on the ride a few times, and it did seem a bit weird, some of the topics it covered. I hadn't really seen the movie much, though it used to be um, on the BBC. They used to have a thing on bank holidays where they'd show clips from Disney shows and things. So I was familiar with it. Has anyone else been on the ride? No. My memory of the ride is it's really long. It's like about yeah. 15 minutes. Well, it's very slow. It's a water ride. It's based on the Brer Rabbit section of the film, which out of context, the ride itself probably isn't that offensive. But then, you know... Realising that it comes from Song of the South and Zippity Doodah plays throughout it, which has its own problems. I think it's certainly a very good thing that it's it's going and being replaced with something more suitable. Um, I saw this morning they're talking about Jungle Cruise perhaps being the next to be looked at. There's some slightly dubious things in there with the primitive natives and things like that, yeah. As long as they leave It's a Small World alone, I will be fine. (laughs) Because at least that... That rides hearts in the right place. That offends everybody. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, John, I know you love California as a place, and I know, Hazel, you've been lots and lots of times. Uh, I think the Californian century will mm. really yeah. illuminate certain aspects of things. Even the episode about the water supply, I hadn't really thought about how Californian cities get their water, but the story of how it came to be and the corruption and the the backroom deals and things mm. like that, mm. I mean... Stanley Tucci's playing it like a film noir detective and the stories really do fit that. And I think if you've ever been there, definitely worth yeah. a listen. Yeah, definitely. But yeah, California's probably one of my favourite places on the planet, so I'm really looking forward to mm-hmm. listening to that and hearing the cesspit of corruption and racism that's all built on. So, <laughs> so cheers, Dan. Thanks. <laughs> How many uh, Stanley Tucci's out of 10, Dan? Oh, it's a solid eight Tucci's out of 10. <laughs> Am I allowed to recommend a director? Yes, sure. (laughs) You're recommending the works of? Yes, yes, I am. So I've been trying my best to try and educate myself as much as I can about uh, the black experience and the social and the racial injustice that goes on in the world. Um, And the work of one particular director has been very helpful for that, and that is Ava DuVernay. She has written, produced and directed uh, three key things I wanted to kind of talk about. The first one is Selma, which came out in 2014 and is based on the 1965 sequence of events that led to the Selma to Montgomery march for voting rights. And at the time, African-Americans had been given the right to vote, but in practice, it was very, very difficult for them to do so. Several states in the South were still in the process of desegregation. And in the opening scene of Selma, we see Oprah Winfrey's character 
a real life person called Annie Lee Cooper um, being denied her voting application for ridiculous reasons. Like she was asked to name every single court justice and there's over like 160 of them or something like that. The film focuses on Martin Luther King Jr.'s efforts to peacefully protest against the denial of basic voting rights. We also see the Alabama governor, George Wallace's attempts to suppress protests, LBJ in the White House trying to manage the whole situation. And then the culmination of the film is this, the, the march from Selma to Montgomery, which comes to a head on the Edmund Pettus Bridge, I think it's called where protesters, including John Lewis, who is, I believe, still a congressman today, they approach a line of state troopers. They order the marchers to turn back. And when the marchers hold their ground, the troopers then attack very violently with clubs, with horses, with tear gas um, and other weapons. And all of these horrific incidents then get shown on TV. And that then inspires some white Americans to join the march on a separate day and they finally make it across the bridge. It's a beautifully directed film. It earned Ava DuVernay a Best Director nomination in the Golden Globes, the first black woman to have done that. It was nominated for Best Picture at the Oscars, but uh, she didn't receive a Best Director nomination. And um, David... I'm going to really try and pronounce his name correctly because it's very important. Um, a yellow woe. Oh, yellow woe. Thank you. Um, he, he played Martin Luther King Jr. He was phenomenal. No recognition from the Academy for him, although he did get a Golden Globe nomination for Best Actor. And he tweeted recently about how the cast wore I Can't Breathe t-shirts to the film's 2014 premiere. And that is a reference to Eric Garner's last words in 2014 when he was choked to death by a police officer. And certain Academy members deemed them offensive and then vowed not to vote for the film. The movie was ultimately nominated in just two categories for Best Picture and Best Original Song, which it ended up winning. It's worth saying that the Academy responded to the tweet and said, we hear you and we're committed to progress but that will have to be seen before it's believed. But yeah, it's a, it's a very, very powerful film. I've watched it about three times now. So if anyone hasn't seen it, I'd, I'd highly recommend it. The other thing I want to mention was a documentary called 13th. It came out in 2016. It's on Netflix, but it's recently been made available for free on YouTube. And it gets its title from the 13th Amendment to the uh, United States Constitution, which is the amendment that declared slavery to be unlawful. But there was a clause within it which stated that slavery was unacceptable except as a punishment for a conviction of a crime. And what the documentary does is show how certain aspects of slavery has actually continued after the end of the American Civil War through criminalising certain behaviours and certain petty crimes, enabling police to arrest black and poor citizens and force them to work for the state. It also discusses the war on drugs and all of that was kind of far more weighted against minority communities. It also deals with the massively growing numbers of black prisoners in the late 20th century the documentary opens with the stat that the US has 5% of the world's population, but they have a quarter of the world's prisoners. It also talks about how many black people have never seen the inside of a courtroom. Um, they've never been given a trial. And in many cases, forced confessions, trying to persuade them to confess to something they might or might not have done because they'll get a shorter sentence as a result, because you'll definitely be convicted by the system. Donald Trump is referenced a lot uh, in terms of the way he speaks to and about people. You know, there's footage of him telling a crowd to beat the hell out of a black woman, interspersed with footage of public lynchings from the Jim Crow era, uh, and Trump making multiple references to the good old days of being able to beat people up. It's a tough watch, but it's, it's a very important one if you want to understand some of the context and some of the history. Mm. It provides many profound answers which is based on a lot of evidence and based on a lot of stats. Um, sorry, I know I'm going on a bit, but the last, I promise this is the last one. <laughs> um, I just want to mention a TV series, which is co-written and directed by Ava DuVernay. And it came out on Netflix last year and it's called When They See Us. It's based on the 1989 Central Park jogger case. And it explores the lives and the families of five male suspects who were falsely accused 
and then prosecuted on charges relating to the rape and assault of a woman in Central Park. The five boys were divided by a prosecutor and coerced into giving false testimony about each other. One of them, who was 16 at the time, was tried as an adult by the legal system and was held in adult facilities uh, for a a long period of time. It's a a challenging watch. Uh, It forces you as a viewer to question what justice really means, and it it does demand your fury at certain times. But I'd I'd really recommend it. Mm -hmm. Um, So check out Ava DuVernay's catalogue of work. This is one avenue that I would highly recommend you explore. I think she's a better documentary filmmaker than she is a narrative filmmaker. 13 was amazing. I thought it was Mm. really, really well done. And I expected to be preached to a little bit. Yeah. But it wasn't that at all. It was a very forensic examination with a lot of emotion where it was needed, but a historical examination of where these problems came from and how they exacerbated over the years. And I I thought that was one of the most powerful documentaries I've seen in a long while. Her narrative stuff, I think, can veer towards a little bit smoksy. But I think as a documentary filmmaker, she's one of the best documentary filmmakers we have. Yeah, I'd I'd probably disagree on the smolts from the narrative stuff that I've seen. I think she has a good balance um, Mm. and a way to, to sort of make you feel something, which is what I want from a film. Well some films you know i want i want to feel i want to have an emotional reaction i want feelings inside me to be stirred up and um she does that in both her documentaries and in her narrative stuff so i probably mm. disagree with that but i say I, there's yeah. still some stuff that i need to watch of hers i haven't seen the tv series you, you mentioned so that might be next to my list can i recommend a recommendation based on your recommendation hazel yes please do <laughs> i've just finished reading a book by tanahasi coates called between the world and me which is framed as a letter to his teenage son, all about his experience growing up in Baltimore, going to Howard University, police violence against black people. And he's an incredible writer, very powerful, very vivid, very angry, but so well written. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's really worth reading. He's a great writer anyway. He wrote a book called We Were Eight Years in Power about the Obama administration. He's written a series of graphic novels for Black Panther. And that is definitely a good one to read for a bit more about uh, American black history and experience. Can I make a recommendation based upon your recommendation, based upon Hazel's recommendation? (laughs) Just all be nice to each other. Yeah, that's a good idea. (laughs) That's mine. I couldn't agree more. (laughs) So I would say that's a 10 out of 10, Hazel. It's a very, very much a 10 out of 10. Yeah. Who's next with their recommendation? I've got a comparatively light and fluffy one. Never my sex tape. <laughs> <laughs> yes, give us a light and fluffy one. <laughs> You'll right. never uh, hear me saying to you, Andy, though, give me a light and fluffy one. Good. Except when you're asking for a marshmallow. <laughs> what are the other types of marshmallows? Soggy. <laughs> Soggy and burnt. <laughs> I hate marshmallows. Name. Just the texture of marshmallow makes me want to. Yeah, I I miss just thinking about it. I hate marshmallows. What is the deal with that? Why do people like them so much? Weird. Sorry, light and fluffy. Let's go. Right, comparatively (laughs) light and fluffy. I'd like to recommend Staged, uh, which is a new six-episode sitcom. Arrived a few weeks ago on BBC iPlayer. Uh, it stars David Tennant and Michael Sheen as themselves, and the premise is that they've signed on to do a West End play together before lockdown began. Uh, the director feels that they can get a leg up on the competition by rehearsing remotely via video chat. So the bulk of the show is made up of Tennant and Sheen bickering like an old married couple via Zoom, which is delightful. Uh, the show is very funny. It's a great exhibition of their charm. Uh, both of them are very charming men. Uh, they've got wonderful chemistry together and they're equally keen to make fun of themselves as they are of making fun of each other. Uh, Michael Sheen portrays himself as slightly pompous, pretentious about his craft, and maybe a bit mad. Uh, David Tennant, by contrast, seems utterly frazzled by the lockdown experience, uh, wears the same old hoodie every day. Uh, He seems quite defensive about how little he's managing to get done as well. And they've got the kind of relationship which conveys their closeness primarily via the medium of arguments, uh, which can be passive-aggressive, aggressive-aggressive, sarcastic or childish. 
Um, for example, there's a running joke throughout all six episodes with them arguing about whose name should appear first on the poster. And this is reflected in the opening credits of the next episode, which is very nice. The uh, whole thing's gloriously fun to behold. You, you do get the sense that they're wonderful friends, really, which I'm, I assume they are in real life. Did they meet making good omens or did they know each other beforehand? I think they knew each other before. Yeah. You'd think they would have crossed paths, but you get the impression that they've got a camaraderie that goes back years and years and they know each other very, very well indeed. I wasn't a huge fan of Good Omens, but uh, their chemistry was the brightest star in that show. Tennant and Sheen aren't the only characters in Staged. Both of their wives appear at times. Uh, the director, Simon, is a fantastically ineffectual middleman who has absolutely no control over anything whatsoever. Uh, there was also a couple of A-list celebrity cameos as well, particularly joyously in episode three, which is entitled Who the Fuck is Michael Sheen? The whole show feels quite fresh and unique to me. It's got a pleasingly quirky vibe while remaining completely realistic and believable. It's charming and fun, very easy to watch. There are only six episodes, each between 15 and 20 minutes long, so you could watch the entire series in less time than it takes to watch Avengers Endgame up to the point when they all return from the time heist. Uh, so there's really no excuse not to give it a try. Do it. Do it now. Is that what your way of measuring time now? Where you'd get up to in Avengers Endgame? Yeah, I think that's uh, the most sensible way of doing it. So what you're saying is a realistic, down-to-earth programme that's swarming with giant robots. <laughs> and I wouldn't say swarming. Um, the giant robots are primarily uh, implied. I hadn't heard of that, but I will definitely be checking that out. I've seen the first two episodes and I thought it was really fun. It's an oddly short length, which means you can use it when you've only got a short amount of time. And it's quite useful to have those things. So we've kind of saved them up and not watched them all yet, which is a bit weird. Mm. Uh, the one thing I do wonder is whether it'll date. Mm. Will it look weird watching that as a sort of record of a time? It may well do. As soon as it ends, it's like everyone will want to just immediately try and forget all that and stick it in the cupboard mentally. You're probably right. It probably does have a certain um, shelf life for it. Once lockdown does eventually end, and it will end, um, we probably don't want too many reminders of it. But whilst we're still in it, I guess it's a it's a nice way to yeah. see how mm -hmm. other people are spending their time and trying to entertain us. It's the best lockdown thing I've seen in terms of the best use of Zoom cameras and being able to film things in people's homes and stuff. A lot of stuff has been fairly painful to watch, I think. But I think staged works really, really well. I've found myself watching stuff that was made more than three months ago and thinking, oh, oh, they're really close. Right. There's a lot, yes. of, oh, yeah. there's a lot yeah. of people in that mm -hmm. festival crowd. They're not two metres apart. It's very weird. The current state of the world has affected how I watch yeah. things, thinking, oh, they never go away with that now. Yeah. Even Avengers Endgame, thinking, well, they're all gathered around in a circle there, but this doesn't look good. <laughs> so I've kind of been trying to avoid lockdown programming. I don't need reminding, quite frankly. But from Andy's recommendation, staged sounds like it would be fun enough to forget the depressing circumstances in which it is made. Yeah. yeah. My main takeaway from stage was that David Tennant has a TARDIS in his back garden. <laughs> Does which he? is delightfully nerdy. So that's just for phoning the police. But it's also quite handy because the, their wives, I think, in both cases are actresses, aren't they? Mm -hmm. So that, that's quite handy. She's married to her dad, though, isn't she? That's a bit weird. What? <laughs> Who's married to their own dad? <laughs> yeah what, what, what's the name is it she was called georgia moffat now she's georgia Tennant. but her dad is peter davison who was doctor who a couple of right. doctor who's okay. ago mm -hmm. thank you so for it's clarifying weird. it is weird <laughs> so uh andy how many zooms out of 10 i'd give it eight zooms out of 10 how many zoom equivalents with better video quality and end-to-end -end encryption <laughs> easily scalable <laughs> for use in both home business settings out of 10 would you give <laughs> Right, Peter, what have you got? I'd like to talk about something very different, which is Jiri Haji. No idea how you pronounce that, because it's Japanese. I think it's uh, Giri. Giri Haji. Okay. Is she a model? Oh, that's Gigi Hadid. Sorry. <laughs> and apparently it means duty shame in Japanese. It's a BBC series, aired late last year on BBC Two, which is now available internationally on Netflix. It starts in Japan and it follows Kenzo Mori, a Japanese cop who's sent to track down his brother Yuto, the killer for Yakuza, that fled to England after getting his boss's daughter pregnant. When he arrives, Kenzo forms relationships with a British police officer, played by Kelly MacDonald, and Rodney, a male sex worker and drug addict, played by Will Sharp, who has a wickedly bitchy tongue. 
Over the course of eight episodes, we follow the story in London as he tries to find his brother, as well as parallel events back in Japan, as his family try to help the boss's daughter. It's maybe 20% subtitled in Japanese and the rest is in English. I like the moral complexity of it. Few people are completely innocent, but you can understand and empathise why each one does what they do in the moment. And you grow fond of many of them and care about them when they're in a dangerous situation. You don't want them to be caught if they do something wrong, like shooting a gangster to save a family member. Some episodes are really funny, even when they're dealing with serious stuff. Most of it's shot fairly conventionally, but it has a fairly eclectic style where they'll throw in occasional flourishes, like go to black and white or multiple split screen, or like a watercolour painting effect for the episode recaps. At one point they even throw in a dance routine, which seems a bit bizarre. But it's not too distracting, it just gives it a sort of style. Overall, I really enjoyed it. Has anyone else seen any of it? I saw the first couple when they won the BBC and then got distracted and when I came back they disappeared, so I'm pleased that they were on Netflix. We thought there were six episodes and that we were watching the last episode and we're going, how are they going to tie all this up so quickly? And we've got it wrong. There were two more episodes to come. <laughs> I enjoyed what I saw. Um, I'd give it eight normal fingers out of ten because the Yakuza cut off the two little ones. <laughs> yeah, uh, Is it on Netflix or on iPlayer to watch now? I think it's Netflix now. Cool. <laughs> all right, who's next? Lovely as it is to see you all. I'm a little bit grumpy because I should have been sat in a field in Somerset drinking cider and watching bands at the moment. Because as we record, it is the last day of the Glastonbury Festival, which is my favourite place on earth. <laughs> so I'm, I'm very sad that I'm not there this year, but we've got tickets to go next year. But in an attempt to make up for this, the BBC have done an excellent Glastonbury channel on the iPlayer and they've managed to get about 135 and counting sets from the last 20 years or so of Glastonbury that have been put on over the weekend and are going to be on for the next 30 days or so. So if you're in the UK, you've got plenty of chance to catch them after this episode goes out. So there's some absolute delights on there, but I would like to go into my music nerdery for a couple of minutes, if I may, and just recommend a couple of really, really good sets in there if you want to get a, a sense of what Glastonbury is all about. Yeah. Great. You're not going to say Kanye West, are you? <laughs> no. Then you may proceed. <laughs> that was painful. <laughs> Kanye went up on the crane above the audience, and I would love that crane to have just driven with Kanye <laughs> Take him away. into the distance, into the, into the sunset, <laughs> never to be seen again. I've mentioned my love of Nick Cave many times before. I think if you, if you remember the the Cave or Cage quiz. Yes, we which do. I'm, say was a, <laughs> was a highlight of the podcast. There's a 1989 set, but there's a 2013 set where he was the subheadliner on the main stage. And it's Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds at the absolute pomp. I've been looking to see them live a couple of times and they are one of the best live bands in the world. And this really, really captures that, just the energy of Nick Cave and Warren Ellis and the rest of the band, just at the absolute peak of their powers. And there's a little bonus, because you get to see the audience, and on that day, Nick Cave were followed by Mumford and Sons. So you have a mix of uh, devout Nick Cave fans losing their shit and <laughs> some people who were there for Mumford and Sons who just looked <laughs> horrified and disturbed. <laughs> Hopefully, you know, he may have converted a few and their worldviews have changed. There's a couple of sets on there which are really what made bands. Um, so very, very early sets from, I'm not a massive Oasis fan, but there's their 1994 set where basically mm. they just jumped onto the stage and grabbed it. Likewise, Pulp's set is on there from the mid-90s when the Stone Roses dropped out at the last minute, so Pulp stepped in and within 10 minutes had tens if not hundreds of thousands of people in the palm of their hands. Oh, here's a couple of new songs. You won't have heard these before. I hope they go down okay. And it's sorted for ease and whiz and Disco 2000. To see them perform to an audience who have probably never heard those songs before is great. Couple of lesser known ones. Um, Sharon Van Etten. She did a set a couple of years ago, which is really, really powerful and worth watching. So the second light storms. He steps onto the stage in a bulletproof flak jacket with a Union Jack painted on it. Yeah. His set is everything that Kanye West set wasn't, and I'm mm -hmm. not a big grime fan. Mm -hmm. Grime is the musical genre that is the first time where I felt old. <laughs> in that I kind of don't get this. It's for the kids. I'm I'm an old man. <laughs> But watching Storms is set up, I was like, oh, I get it now. I get why this connects with people. 
that's another set where somebody can just grasping what is probably the biggest opportunity he'll ever have by the horns and absolutely bossing it. And quite brave musical choices and theatrical choices. For example, they they pause the show for a while and they bring um, some ballet dancers on. And they make the point that the ballet dancers have on black ballet shoes, which was a new thing at the time. So for decades, black ballet dancers had to wear white shoes because there was none that matched their skin tone. Um, So it's, again, using that platform for, as well as a great musical performance, a great political performance. Yeah. And just a couple to finish. Again, if you just want to see a band at the absolute peak of their powers, Foo Fighters, which Mm. I was, again, really, really lucky to be at live a couple of years ago since 2017. They've played quite a few times, haven't they? They played lower down the bill a few times, but this is the first time they, they headlined on the Saturday night. We watched the Florence and the Machine set from when Foo Fighters mm. would have been headlining. After he ran off the stage and broke his leg. Yeah. So I, I didn't realise they went back the next time and uh, got to headline, mm. which is good. We were there for that, right in the middle of the crowd. And quite a lot of times when you see gigs live, then you watch them on TV. You kind of go, well, that's not got the atmosphere there. But the Foo Fighters gig gives a really good impression of what the gig was like. And there's a bit where the entire crowd is singing back to the band and don't stop for something like about five or ten minutes. They keep trying to start the next song, but the crowd just won't stop singing to them. And that was <laughs> sort of probably one of my top five festival yeah. or live band moments of all time. So it's, it's great to have that recorded. And finally, a band that Peter will know, because I went to see a band called Idols with Peter's son <laughs> rather than Peter. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Idols are a, a Bristol-based punk band who are, I think, one of the most important bands of the last five years. A throwback to like the Sex Pistols and the Stooges. Very, very loud, but with a real social conscience. Songs about the NHS, songs about women's rights, and songs about the danger of masculinity. So they've got that imp- an importance mm. in the lyrics, and they're, they're really, really good guys. And again, they're amazing live. If you've heard of Idols and you're not sure whether you'll like them or not, the Park set from 2019 that's on iPlayer, again, gives you a really good example of what the band's all about. There's a strange breakdown in the middle where they sing songs from Dirty Dancing and Prince and some musicals after the guitarist gets lost somewhere in the crowd and they're just (laughs) filling time while they try and pull him out. The singer Joe Talbot is a massive Glastonbury fan. It's always been his dream to play there. And you just see him get overwhelmed by emotion and kind of can't finish the song and his wife runs out to comfort him and everything. And that's a really, really, again, powerful moment. So there's lots on there. How long are they on for? They're on for 30 days. And the one thing that I haven't mentioned is the best class of set of all time, which is Bowie in 2000. And I'm not going to talk about that, but just watch that because that is just one of the best live concerts. It's just absolutely amazing. 90 minutes of Bowie hits. So yeah, 135 hours of music to watch. And I'm going to try and get for as much of it as possible. And it will mm. kind of make up for me not being Excellent. there. No wonder you haven't had much time to watch other things. <laughs> well, yes. I mean, um, before we came on, there was like, do you have any film or TV recommendations? Like, no, because I've just been watching Glastonbury and Australian MasterChef for the last two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice to, to hear you talk about it because you're almost as big a music nerd as you are a movie nerd. And we don't often let more. you talk about the music side of things. <laughs> so it's <laughs> nice to hear you talk about it. And only at a gig once or twice a week. Yeah. And it's been 14, no, it's been 15 weeks now, I think, since I went to a gig, which was Elvis Costello, mm-hmm. which was a, a nice one to end on. Yeah. But it's very, very strange for me not being in a big sweaty pit full of people dancing and singing. <laughs> uh, John, how many thinly veiled excuses to reshow archive footage out of 130? <laughs> <laughs> 130, definitely. Are you sure the full 130? Just because I've pulled up a web browser and I'm just looking at the selection and it's suggesting to me Coldplay. <laughs> Most of the 130 are great, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, the one thing I would say about the, the BBC coverage of Glastonbury is that it concentrates pretty much entirely on the music, mm. when in fact that's actually only a part of what goes on there. So there's a, a large amount of like there's theatre there and comedy tents and... We saw Jeremy Corbyn there. We saw um, Gillian Anderson give a talk on feminism there. There's a lot more to it that you don't get to realise from the BBC. And I, just, I wish that they'd be a little bit more mm. wide in their coverage. I would have bet folding money that 
when John said the music is only one part of what goes on there. There's also, it, I could have sworn it was going to be a joke. There's also uh, drugs and violence <laughs> and sex <laughs> and vomiting. <laughs> there is certainly one of those things there. Yeah. There's an awful lot of nude people wandering around as well, but I think they're mainly uh, naturists rather than naughtyists, which is what I call people who wear no clothes for sexy reasons. <laughs> <laughs> a naughtyist. <laughs> And now it's time for a feature that we like to call Taking One for the Team. Things that we've covered in the past for this feature are Justice League. Um, and memorably back on episode 14, Dan um, talked about Jurassic World. Don't say uh, it. Falling, falling Kingdom. <laughs> and I Too think um, it, it's the angriest we've ever, ever seen, Dan. So, Dan, you're in the hot seat again. You've got another film that you would like to take one for the team for. What is it? And uh, what's your verdict of it? I recently logged on to Disney Plus and decided to watch Artemis Fowl, the adaptation of a series of children's books by Owen Colfer, which were very popular around the time that the Harry Potter phenomenon was first coming to a global level of awareness in the early 2000s. The film, directed by Kenneth Branagh, has had overwhelmingly bad reviews, but I decided to watch it anyway, because how bad could it be? It's quite bad. Oh, it's quite bad. Are we talking Thor bad? No, because Thor's good. Uh, so <laughs> we're not talking Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom bad, but it's almost definitely going to be the worst blockbuster film I see this year. And that's not just because most of them have been delayed to next year. <laughs> uh, the first bad sign was the running time. It's an hour and a half long which normally I'm all in favour of for films because no film really needs to be three hours long, uh, Irishman. <laughs> but for a summer blockbuster to be an hour and a half long is normally more of a sign that it's been cut to pieces in the editing room. Yeah. I'm yeah. thinking of uh, Jumper from about 10 years ago, which I think was only an hour 20. Films where you get the sense watching them that there's entire characters or there's half an hour missing somewhere that's been taken out at some point, but probably shouldn't have been. I mean, it's a normal thing to do with a movie is make it over long and then adjust things to make them work better. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you can go the other end and they've just kept everything in and it's just too bulky. But um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're right. There's a fine line to be trodden. Yes. And I think this goes to the other side of that line. There's not enough plot and yet there's too much, which sounds weird. <laughs> Artemis is an incredibly intelligent young boy growing up in Ireland. His dad steals things from the world of the fairies, which exists. He has a particular thing. The fairies want it. So does a bad guy. They try and get it. That's what happens. And yet there's backstories for minor characters. There's multiple worlds being set up. There's extended set pieces that don't seem to have anything to do with that plot. There's things about world domination, there's the balance of the universe, there's all these things going on, yet at the same time nothing really happens. And a lot of what does happen felt very blatantly like it's setting up the sequel and setting up the universe and the franchise. And so much stuff is like, yeah, we'll pay that off three films down the way. And I know there are lots of films, especially in recent years with the success of the MCU, that have tried and failed to do that. Yeah. The universal dark universe being the best example where they did the mummy, try to throw in a whole load of stuff to set up the universe and have made no films from it since. And this very much does that. The villain deliberately is masked with a voice distorter, so you can't tell who they are. You can tell that they've kept that back so that it's something to go back to in the sequel. It's fine to do that when it's subtle enough the way that Marvel did it, where you just maybe hint at the Tesseract or you put a post-credit thing in there. And if it doesn't work out, it's fine. They were always extra things beyond the universe of the film. The film always had its goal and it achieved its goals. Uh, yes. It didn't cheat over what the goal was to yeah. push that into future films, which is perhaps the problem here. Yeah, I think that's definitely right. It's one of these ones that is so confident that it's going to be a franchise-spawning mega-success that it doesn't bother to make a good first one. 
Did it struggle much with the... Because in the books, he's very much like an anti-hero. He's almost a bad guy rather than a hero, isn't he? I didn't get that impression from him in the film, which is good because I'm not a fan of anti-heroes anyway. Artemis in the film is just a horrible, dislikable, entitled, excuse my language, little twat. <laughs> it's, no, it's nothing to do with the actor. It's very much the material he's been given as the character. Dan, can I, can I stop you there? Were you watching the Prime Minister's briefing? Instead of the <laughs> mistake there? I was not, but he's very clearly going to grow up to be the kind of person who would give such a briefing. Ooh. Five minutes in, he's mansplaining to his teacher... He's a, he's a little twat and you don't really like him, but you don't really not like him in a cool way either. If that's the way that the book character was, that didn't translate to the screen. Um, Hazel, just to make it clear, uh, mansplaining is when a man explains something to a woman in a patronising fashion. <laughs> Thanks, John. That's good to know. I haven't yeah. heard that one before. <laughs> the thing with Artemis, he's supposed to be so intelligent, he mansplains to everyone, regardless of gender. So he's quite progressive in a way. <laughs> he polysplains. Yeah, he has this assumption that he knows better than literally everybody else and has to tell them so. Uh, the other characters are forgettable. There's a guy played by Nonso Anosi, who is probably best known as uh, Zarazoan Doxus, the richest man in Carth from season two of Game of Thrones. Yeah. Uh, he's quite good, but he gets nothing to do. There's a fairy elf police person called Holly Short, who gets lots of hints at a terrible backstory that we'll find out about in the sequel. Colin Farrell's in there. There's nothing to do. Josh Gad is used mostly as exposition. And the first five minutes of the film are him doing exposition as quickly as he can to set up all of the world you need to know about. Is he called Basil? Sadly not. He's called Mulch Diggums. <laughs> okay. And Mulch Diggums is a giant dwarf, which I wasn't sure if that was just a thing or whether he was unusual for it being a thing. Isn't a giant dwarf just a person? <laughs> I don't know. Um, but yeah, that's, the, that's about as much impression as Mulch Diggums left on me. Um, there's a troll who, and I think the Empire podcast made this point, doesn't look any better than the troll from the first Harry Potter film 20 years ago, mm -hmm. uh, which ain't great when you've got the might of Disney behind you. And all the fairies live in a world at the centre of the earth. It's supposed to look amazing and wonderful and magical, but it just looks dull and dreary. And I don't understand why any of them would want to live there nor do I understand why none of them really want to leave. Which, again, when you've got hundreds of millions of dollars of Disney budget behind you, really shouldn't be an issue. Creating magical worlds is kind of their thing. Yeah. Uh, there are two redeeming features. One is a nice little gag about David Bowie, in which it's implied that he belonged to the world of the fairies and the elves, and the humans just didn't realise that he was actually magic. Well, he's the Goblin King. The second redeeming moment is Judy Dench, who's been roped in by her friend Sir Kenneth to be in this film, playing the head of the fairy police force, with a remarkable Irish accent, who arrives at Artemis's house with an army of fairies. The ramp descends from her ship that she's travelled up from the centre of the earth in. She walks out, gives the camera a little bit of a stare, and says, Top of the morning! <laughs> wow. I had no interest in seeing this film whatsoever <laughs> until you used the phrase Judy Dench as the head of the fairy police force with an unbelievable Irish accent. It's Chronicles of Riddick slash Cats level of bizarre Judy Dench casting. Yeah, she's not had a great sort of 12 months in terms of <laughs> blockbuster releases. Yeah. There's something to be said for being the best thing in something shit, though. <laughs> True. Because you, you get the good notice, don't you? <laughs> You're saying the effects are quite shoddy and so on. Do you get the feeling that perhaps this was destined for Disney Plus a little earlier than they let slip and at some point they decided to cut their losses, not spend as much as they would have done on the finishing up and the editing and, and, and dump it? It wouldn't surprise me, actually. That could also explain the short length if they've had to cut out bits that would have had expensive effect sequences. Yeah, someone clearly saw franchise potential mm -hmm. and the finished product is not something you'd ever expect that from so there could be an interesting behind the scenes tale to be told in a few years time when people are allowed to 
Artemis Fowl would have been a massive flop at the box office with all the attendant bad publicity. So it's a good idea to maybe just sneak it out. I'd compare it most closely to Mortal Engines, the Peter Jackson produced Mm. film Mm. that very much, again, wanted lots of lovely sequels. But the first one wasn't quite good enough to get them to that point and people just didn't go and see it. I don't know whether the big budget sci-fi fantasy tinged young adult oriented blockbuster Mm -hmm. has had its time now or whether it's just so many of them have been bad that weren't the Hunger Games. You know, fantasy book adaptations are notoriously difficult to bring to screen. You know, Lord of the Rings, it took about 10 years to make. It's just the whole process of trying to bring a very, very popular book to life. um, And maybe that's where they struggled. Yeah, I don't know how different it was from the books, uh, Mm. if anybody's read them. I don't know whether it's one of these films that confuses people who haven't read them like me, but annoys people who have read them, much like some other literary adaptations. Not saying anything (laughs) about you and Harry Potter, Hazel. (laughs) (laughs) Who'd have thought the biggest troll in Harry Potter would turn out to be J.K. Rowling? Oh, Oh, dear. (laughs) Do we want a score out of 10 or...? Yeah, yeah. How many missed opportunities? It gets one for the Bowie joke, one for Top of the Morning, and it gets one for the benefit of the doubt because it could have just been cut to shreds in editing. So overall, it's a three out of ten. Ooh. Still better than Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. But then so is everything. And that brings us to the end of another Nerdfest episode. Thank you so much for listening. For next time, do remember to send us in your questions that you would like us to tackle. You can send those to at Nerdfest UK on Twitter and Facebook. And if you like the episode, please subscribe. And if you have time, send us a, a little review, um, hopefully a positive one. John, what would you like to make as an offering to anyone who submits a review? Anybody who submits a review, I will come and put a tent up in your back garden, sit outside it drinking cider whilst you sing and dance for me. <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> uh, until next time in two weeks, you've been listening to... A man who wants to see the making of Artemis Fowl. Either a giant dwarf or a tiny giant. A man who is hiding his little fingers so no one can have them. <laughs> a man who would like to go to sleep in the belly of a tauntaun. <laughs> <laughs> And a woman who might have been persuaded for the first time by John to watch something. It was the first and last time for everything. (laughs) We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. They don't have the Flintstones in Dubai. But Abu Dhabi do. <laughs> <laughs>